Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hi, everyone. This is Jill, and welcome to this week's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. I am so excited for you all to listen to this interview I did um, with Grady Hendricks about his new book, The Final Girl Support Group. If you have been listening to this podcast for um, really any significant period of time, um, you know that I absolutely love Grady Hendricks. I adore his books. Um, Horror Store has been mentioned frequently on this podcast by both me and colleagues. Um, And so I was really excited for the opportunity to talk with Grady about the Final Girl Support Group. Um, So we... Um, talk about the book. We talk about sort of what inspired it. We talk about this idea of the final girl in horror films and horror um, media. Of course, we have to talk about some of his other books because I love them so much. Um, this was just a really, really fun interview, and I'm I've I've been waiting to be able to share it. So, um, the final girl support group comes out on July 13th. So, if you are listening to this on Monday when it goes live. Um, you can, you can pick up the final girl support group the next day. So if you want to get a hold of Adam and I, um, that should be Adam and me. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Anyway, um, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. Um, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok at probooknerds. And you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. So I think that's everything. Um, yeah. So I, I hope you all enjoy this interview I did with Grady Hendricks on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Jill, and my guest today is Grady Hendricks. He is the author of several horror novels, including My Best Friend's Exorcism, Horror Store, and The Southern Book Guide to Slain Vampires. He's also the screenplay writer behind Mohawk and Satanic Panic, and his writing has appeared in the New York Post and Playboy magazine. His latest book, The Final Girl Support Group, is out in July. Grady, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. No, thanks for having me. I um I'm a big library nerd. So uh, you know, I, <laughs> I see the overdrive thing all the time. So I feel like I'm inside my like Kindle. There, yeah, we're just gonna like live in your Kindle for right now. We'll exactly. pretend that. We'll pretend that. Um, can you start by giving our listeners a brief intro to the final girl support group? Sure. Uh, this is a book that weirdly enough, I started writing this book. I looked at the first document for it. It was dated 2014. Um, And the book is basically about this conversation I was having with a friend that was what happens to sort of final girls, you know, the girl who survives a horror movie. What happens next? Like, where does she go? What is she? All her friends just got killed. Mm -hmm. She had to kill someone like and and, you know, you see them sometimes they go crazy and they're screaming or sometimes they're like gazing off into the distance, all traumatized or uh, Alice uh, Harsey in the back of the truck at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like laughing hysterically. So like, what happens? And 
you know, there's been other sort of final girl books and movies I've seen around, but they always treat them as sort of these campy icons. And I really wanted to take them seriously and, and think if that happened to you, how do you live the rest of your life? So it's about a group of final girls whose, you know, movies got made about the things that happened to them back in the day. And it's 20 years later and they're still in a support group. And some are sort of in denial about what happened. Some have moved on and adjusted. Some are just sort of heavy drinkers and some are sort of paranoid shut-ins. And they're kind of they they're they're kind of questioning why they're still in this group going on and on about something that happened to them in high school. And they're almost about to fall apart. And then someone starts to kill them one by one. And the only person who believes it's a conspiracy is their most paranoid member. And everyone thinks oh, that well. maybe this is her <laughs> ploy to keep them all together. So, um, so yeah, that's Final Girl Support Group. Yeah, I, I like that um, you said that they're sort of um, treated like this kind of campy icon thing because they do, they play a part in so many slasher and, and horror films. Um so I, I like the idea that you're sort of taking them a little bit beyond that. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I feel like part of my job as like a writer is to kind of take these things that we all take for granted more seriously and kind of apply the reality principle, like vampires, how does that work? Or like exorcisms, like, is there more to it than just a teenage girl tied to a bed while an old man yells at her? Yeah. Um, and if you apply too much reality principle, then it starts getting ridiculous. But um so this was one of those things where it's always been this sort of trope in horror movies. And I just want to see like, what, what's that like? What would that, what would your life look like? Not great. <laughs> short answer. Yeah. Short, short answer. You know, it's, I think it's funny though, that you talk about the reality because, um, you know, unlike, uh, a haunted furniture store or vampires, like this concept of someone surviving a massacre is like there are real examples right like you have the nurse from the chicago um oh with richard stack right yeah so like we we have this like this is like a real thing that exists in our world this idea of like of of someone surviving um, um a massacre and so that that adds i think this slightly eerier element to this book because you're like oh this actually like could happen there are final girls out there in the world yeah and also there's this i mean you know i can't i can't speak to to trauma i mean i i've experienced my small share of it but like i'm a dude it's a different world you know that kind of thing um but it was really interesting to me that sort of the folk i mean a lot of people think oh i'm not a horror fan i don't really like those slasher movies but you think about a slasher movie and it's really just someone's in a normal place like a summer camp or a school or their sorority house and there's a guy with a weapon methodically moving through and killing everyone he sees and um gosh somehow that strikes me as somewhat timely um a friend of mine was actually uh she's a agent for and most of her clients do children's books and one of her clients it was doing a book that takes place during an active shooter drill at a school and the author was saying that the reason she wrote the book is because her daughter came in and woke her up one night and said mom there's a man in the house with a gun Mm -hmm. and she started to talk to other parents and their kids had the same thing and when I was a kid it was it was like a guy in the closet with a knife and what they started to realize was that sort of school shootings happen so often that that's become the new boogeyman for kids. It's someone's in their house. It's a man and he has a gun. And I was it just, I, I was writing this book at the time and I was like, oh my God, that's, that's the slasher, you know, structure right there. Like these movies 
almost anticipated this fear we all live with on a daily basis. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you, you mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre. When I was in college, I went to um, a college here in Ohio, um, out near Toledo, that's basically like surrounded by cornfields. And my, uh, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year, um, they re-released Texas Chainsaw Massacre in theaters, or maybe it was the updated version. And so uh, a classmate of mine, we're like, we're going to go see it for Halloween. That sounds like a great idea. You know, we don't want to go deal idea. with the- we're like, we don't want to deal with the drunks downtown at the bars. We're just going to go see, yeah, like the midnight showing of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then as we're leaving the theater, so yeah, it's like two o'clock in the morning. Um, we decide to take the back roads um, because that sounds smart um, to not deal with the drunks downtown. And then we're driving and I'm just like, it is pitch black there are fields for miles around us. And I was like, Aaron, this was a terrible idea. <laughs> like we, like there is the, yeah, there's like those slasher. It does it. It plays on this like very real fear that I think we all have. And yeah, it just sort of um, evolves as society evolves with what that bogeyman is. Yeah. Well, and there's also, there's also, um, I mean, I mean, A, I got to say when people are like, oh, I don't get scared like that. I, I feel like everyone's had that experience that you've had. You're out somewhere in the country and you're not quite sure where you are, where you're going. And you have to make a three point turn or get yeah. out of the car to like pee or like you got to like, you wind up at a dead end road and you just think, oh my God, a guy's going to come out of the woods at any minute or the cornfield or the whatever. Um but, you know, it's interesting, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when that movie, kept, like, I first encountered that movie on VHS, because that's like, I'm a million years old. And <laughs> it was like a dupe that the video store had. So it was this crummy VHS tape where they'd written the title on the side in Magic Marker. And if you've ever rented a VHS, they come in like plain, like plastic, clear clamshell cases, like they're not the box art and everything. Right. We get it home. This thing looks like a snuff film, you know, <laughs> and you put it, we put it in. And like, we don't recognize any of the actors. We thought we were gonna have this fun horror movie, like, you know, Friday the 13th part four or like Nightmare on Elm Street three. And we were traumatized. I mean, it looked real. And that was the reaction when that movie came out. No one knew the director, no one knew the actors. And I think it was Wes Craven who said, who are these Mansonite crazy people who made this movie? Uh, People really, it felt real. And that's the interesting thing that horror does because it's the only genre that says it's real. Like even back to the early horror novels, like Castle of Otranto and Turn of the Screw, they all have this conceit that, oh, these are letters we found in a library, or this is a story a governess told. And then you look at things like the Amityville Horror, which was supposed to be true, and the Blair Witch Project. And so horror is this weird thing where it's only genre, where there's always this thing of, it could have really happened. Maybe. I don't know. Um, you know, look at creepy pasta, which is all over the place now. You know, it's like it gets <laughs> well, wilder. Oh, yeah, that's and, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gets wilder and wilder now, but the original stuff was like, it's kind of like, could that be real? I don't know. Like, did did was there a children's TV show where everyone who watched it killed themselves? I mean, I I used to watch Captain Kangaroo. That was no great shakes. Like <laughs> um, Yeah, it, it makes me think of the um the no sleep subreddit where exactly. I'm like, is this, is this real? I can't tell if this is real. I'm not sure I want it to be real or not. <laughs> and there's that guy, what's his name? Nathan or date Nathan Auerbach, I think, who wrote one of those on No Sleep that was uh, called Footsteps, I think. And it was him as an adult 
remembering stuff he'd forgotten about growing up and then his mom filling in these blanks and like there was a guy living under his trailer and I was addicted to it and they were coming out in real time when I was reading them and they wound up getting published in a book called Pen Pals, I think. Um, but they were great. And I read the book and I was like, the book's good, but just seeing these float up from this anonymous username, just sort of out of the blue, you're like, there was some kind of frisson there where it was like hard, like a book, an editor seen it, it's gotten a right, cover designer, right. but this was like, oh, maybe this kid did have a really <laughs> messed up childhood. Yeah, there's another one. I forget who the the writer was, um, but he wrote about buying a house um, with his wife, like a farmhouse and then, or like a ranch. And then, then the neighbor came over and was like, you know, there's some rules you have to sort of follow. Things get a little weird around here. Um, and as it sort of like unfolds what these weird things are, you're like, I, I feel like this probably didn't happen, but it's told in such a way that it feels so authentic that mm-hmm. I 100% absolutely buy that it could have happened. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, and that's a kind of horror that I've never been good at, which is that kind of slow boil horror. It's like, oh, here are the rules. Rule one, no problem. Two, no problem. Three, little inconvenient. Four, <laughs> this is weird. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and eventually you're so far down that alley, you can't get out. Like, I can't do that kind of horror. I can't write it because I can't, live it like the second someone says something weird I'm like I gotta get something out of my car and the next thing they know I'm like driving away like I've seen too many horror movies too young to stick around for <laughs> anything that seems suspect <laughs> that's that's fair that's fair <laughs> although I don't know are you a murderino I am not I mean like I'm familiar with the podcast and um I am not a murderino though no. yeah well no because they they had their book come out last year or the year before mm-hmm. and, and it's okay but there's a great story in it where one of them talks about how when she was a waitress um that she wanted to take some like nice photos to get some modeling gigs get in her portfolio and she had a day off and a regular customer this middle-aged guy who she'd been serving for a really long time super nice guy was like oh i'm a amateur photographer And she tells the story about going out to take these photos with him. And it was just like, first he wanted to do it far away. And then we walked away from the car and he winds up just sort of like convincing her to take her top off and take some (laughs) fun in the end. But it's like, oh my God, you're reading this thing. And it's one of the most sort of sweaty palm things I've ever read because man, I think a lot of people, I've been there, you know, where it's like, this isn't a good idea, but I don't want to make a fuck. Okay. Now this really isn't a good idea, but this is, mm, you know, like, and you just wind up in a situation where you're like, how the hell did I get here? (laughs) Well, yeah. And I think that's one of those things when you're either reading a horror novel or watching a movie and you are yelling at the screen, like, don't open the door. Like, what are you doing? Like stay far away. And it's easy to do that from the outside. But yeah, if you're in that moment, um, you know, I, I don't know if we can all say that it would be easier for us to like not open the scary door at the end of the hallway if there's like weird noises coming. Yeah. So, I mean, and I also think that social pressure too, especially for women, just to sort yeah. of get along and all that stuff. I think it's overwhelming. You know, I did a vampire book called Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. And someone asked me, they're like, well, does this vampire have mind control powers? Because he seems to be able to make these women do all this stuff. And I'm like, he's a dude. They're women. Like, <laughs> like he doesn't need mind control power. He needs the power of the patriarchy and overwhelming social pressure. 
Yeah, no, that's 100% accurate. Yeah, that is, that is accurate. And I, you know, I think something that I love about your books, but also that sort of sets them apart from a lot of what's out there in the horror genre is that yours are very funny too. You like strike this balance of terrifying, but also humorous. And I, I don't know how you do it, but, um, you do it well. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate it. I mean, to me, that's just that reality principle I was talking about. Like, I find life really funny. And then the next minute, it's really horrible. Um, you know, I mean, like, right right now, my dad is actually in the hospital. He, he had a stroke. And, and he's going to be fine. They're running tests. But he's convinced he's on a cruise ship. And he's he's getting really, really irritated. They're not letting him go up on deck because, and I'm like, you know, that's the most, and he's also mad at the quality of the food. He wants to send a complaint because oh, yeah. like, he's <laughs> like, I didn't order this and it's not that good. And usually this cruise does much better food. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's really a little bit scary. My dad's had a stroke and is in the hospital. On the other hand, I'm like, you know, <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous. And yes. I feel like that's just life. It's ridiculous one second. It's horrifying the next. And often it's both at the same time. No, that's, I, uh, my mom um, had leukemia a couple of years ago and she was in the ICU and towards the end, she, it was, it was very similar. Like she would say these things because she had like thought she was somewhere else and it was so hard to not laugh. And because you're just like, this is absurd. This is absurd, but yeah, no mom, you were not driving in the car with, you know, whoever you think you're in the car with. I'm going to, I'm going to shift topic slightly. Um, <laughs> Please. Sorry. I, sorry. I no, that was me. I brought it up. Um, oh no. I was the one who got started on hospitals. Um, I'm, you know, we, we had talked earlier, I think before we started recording about not having like questions that like they actually have to get to, but I do have a question. Sure. That I have to get to because you have a lot of fans at our office, oh. which is based in Cleveland. And my colleagues would be very upset with me if I don't actually ask this because we've been wondering it for a very long time. So your book horror store is set in a haunted Scandinavian furniture store, um, which is located in Northeast Ohio. Specifically, we find out it is located off Route 77 near Independence. I mention this because our office is located off of Route 77 near Independence. Really? If you are driving on 480, you can actually look over um, and see like this huge, big warehouse looking building with our name overdrive emblazoned on the side of the the building. It would be a perfect location for an Ikea if we had one. (laughs) But we're just sort of curious, like, how did you settle on that location for a horror store? So, okay. So I (laughs) I wrote horror store, I think in like 2012 or something. And I had about a few years before that, I had been to Cleveland about three times in a row, just sort of for the first time, like within a two year period, Uh, there was a wedding there, my little uh, brother went to a boarding school near there, and we took him up there and um, and then what was the third, I can't remember the third reason, oh, it was a friend of mine moved there and we went to visit, and um, it was at the time that Cleveland wasn't doing so great, it was like post 2008, and I remember this friend of mine who moved there was like, oh my God, there's these houses for sale and all these artists are going to move there and all that. I mean, everyone I know who did that moved back. Um, like they, I don't know what they were yeah. looking for, but, <laughs> but I remember being in the hotel on a Sunday morning and I was like, and it was a downtown Cleveland. It was right near, I think the train station, mm-hmm. I think. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go get us coffees and my wife. So I went downstairs and it was like 2010. 
and I walked for 45 minutes and didn't see a single thing that was open. Now, granted, it was Sunday morning, but like nothing. It, there's nothing. And I finally, yeah. I finally wound up in like the warehouse district or mm-hmm. something where I found a coffee. And like by the time I get back to the room, they're freezing cold. But I was like, wow, this city has these gorgeous buildings. I mean, it's clearly like a city that was doing great at some point and someone built all this beautiful stuff. But I was like, this is like a ghost town. And that just always stuck in my head. And then when I was writing Horror Store, um, there's you guys have a great Books by the Bank festival that I could do mm-hmm. a lot. And um, I was like, I was like, you know, I'm going to set this in Cleveland. And um, that got me invited to Books by the Bank, which was nice. <laughs> um, and then I was looking at the map and I got to say, man, Google Maps and Google Earth are such a great resource for a writer. Whenever a yeah. writer gets something wrong geographically, I'm like, there's no excuse for that. Not anymore. <laughs> um, and that turn off by independence, it just seemed like the perfect little piece of land to build a big building like that, which apparently it is, I guess, is. right. So <laughs> I was like, perfect. And I needed it near a river too, because of the the flooding and the thing. So like, it was just perfect, exactly what I needed. Okay. Yeah. Every time anybody in the office has, has read horse or, or it comes up, we're always like, it's a very weird experience to read that book. And when they like get to that part where, um, yeah, they're trying to get the cops to come and they give the address or the location. We're (laughs) like, wait a minute. That's, that's where we are. That's weird. (laughs) That's really weird. I also, you know, and, and two things with that one is I'm, I'm working on the, the feature film version of horror store right now still set in Cleveland, still that turn off. Um, And, uh, but the other thing is a book is a really weird thing. Like you wind up when you write one, focusing on something for so long and imagining it in so much detail that it kind of becomes the lens you see your entire world through. And just so many coincidences come up. And I think it's like the Volvo syndrome where you get a Volvo and something like, wow, everyone drives a Volvo. Everyone has one, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the same thing. So like this this freaks me out a little bit, but not <laughs> as much as it would before I started writing books. And I'm just like, mm, this happens. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> now, I should say, um, along with your novels, you have written a book called Paperbacks from Hell that examines uh, the history of 70s and 80s horror fiction. And, um, you know, I know in the intro you talk about uh, finding a book um, whose name I cannot remember, but it has like the leprechauns, the. Oh, The Little People by John Christopher. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So, like, have you always kind of had this? lifelong interest in horror sort of as a as a general thing no not at all in fact as a kid I didn't read horror because I thought the covers were too gross um I read mostly science fiction and some fantasy and um Piers Anthony was like inevitable he was just had like 80 books out at the time (laughs) um a lot of men's adventure stuff like I was super into war um as most like 12 year old boys are um and I didn't start, I mean, I read Stephen King and Clive Barker, but like, you know, you just kind of osmose onto those as a little kid. Um, I didn't really start reading horror until I was older. And actually, um, and I didn't start reading the paperbacks until I actually found that book, The Little People. Uh, And for people who don't know, the cover, the paperback cover features a castle disgorging a a stream of Nazi leprechauns wielding bullwhips. It's pretty irresistible. And I found that in like a dollar bin at at a convention. And I just started reading it. And so I got obsessed with these paperbacks because they would be these paperback swap shops. And I was like, 
who are these authors? Like, you know, I don't know who J.N. Williamson or William Johnstone or Elizabeth Ingstrom or Barry Wood are, but they clearly published a lot of books back in the day. Uh, so I just started reading them randomly. And then when I got a chance to write paperbacks from hell, I had to sort of structure my reading and actually learn things about them. And it's been great. Meeting a lot of these authors and these cover artists has been really a really, really gratifying experience. Um, just to sort of say, like, I mean, listen, some of these books are ridiculous. I mean, Nazi <laughs> leprechauns, phone right. calls that melt your brain. John Coyne wrote this book called The Searing about aliens who use orgasms to make women's brains turn into liquid and run out their noses. I mean, just, sure, just sure. you know, uh, just ridiculous stuff. On the other hand, there's some books in there that are just my life would be poor if I hadn't read them. Joan Sampson's The Auctioneer, almost anything by Michael McDowell, Elizabeth Ingstrom's When Darkness Loves Us, Barry Wood's The Tribe, uh, Ken Greenhall's Elizabeth, um, and he wrote a non-horror novel called Lenore that's one of the most amazing works of historical fiction I've ever read. I mean, I just, I just would be not who I am if I hadn't read this stuff. It's just, you know, you read those books that just you feel like add something to your life, and, and I would have missed so many. Um, I'm glad you mentioned cover art because I think something that is always consistently wonderful about your books is the cover art. You know, like my best friend's uh, exorcism looks like it could belong in paperbacks from hell, which is fantastic. Um, and, you know, horror store looks like an Ikea catalog and a Southern book club guide to slain vampires has this very Southern Gothic feel. So you clearly have lucked into having really, really good cover art designers for your books. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, um, my publisher for most of those books, for all those books, was a company called Quirk. It's a small house, but they have a really good design sensibility. And the art directors who were there at the time, Doogie Horner, who did the paperbacks from hell. Uh, sorry, yeah, he did do the cover paperbacks from hell, and we sold our souls, and Best Friends Exorcism in paperback. Um is a genius. And Andy Reid did Horror Store and Southern Book Club, and she just really has an eye. Um Doogie's stuff's a little wilder than hers. Her stuff's a little more elegant than his. But like, you know, art directors are such unsung heroes. And it really bums me out to see a lot of cover art these days because I do feel like a lot of it sort of, it really has to jump through a lot of hoops. Like you want something that attracts a reader but doesn't alienate them. But you also need to make sure the buyers at Barnes and Noble or Amazon are happy with it. And also it's got to show up in ebook form, which is really small. And so it's just at a certain point, they kind of aim towards the middle. And I, there's nothing wrong with that. But you wind up, like, they don't get a chance to really cut loose. And most of these art directors have really great, like, imaginative abilities. They just don't get a chance to cut them loose and, and go wild. And one of the nice things about reading paper, or writing paperbacks from hell is I actually, you know, interviewed a lot of people from back in the day, 70s, 80s, into the 90s, when the art director, the publisher, they were the Don Draper of that company. Yeah. They were just like, everything's going to be red and all your covers had red on them. You know, they just had these like genius theories and ideas and these crazy experiments they tried and everyone kind of treated them like gods and they did a lot of amazing stuff. Um, so yeah, so I, I kind of miss those days. I keep wanting someone to do a Mad Men set in the like 70s horror paperback industry. Yeah, I, I do love any Mad Men reference. Uh, it's good stuff there. I could definitely see that kind of as a good setting. Like there's a lot you could do with that for sure. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the stuff that was interesting is they would sometimes, I don't know if you remember those old mass market paperbacks of Shakespeare that have like a mm-hmm. white cover and a pencil drawing in there. Mm-hmm. Those were the roughs. The art director, I can't remember who it is. I feel like it might've been Milton Charles, but it might've been um, James Plumieri. But anyway, saw those and was like, these are good enough. These are awesome. We don't want to go to inks. We don't want to use color. This is what we're doing. Like, it's just that kind of impulsiveness and that, I don't know. There's something really like, that's so different from how it is today. Yeah, yeah, because there's always that saying about like not judging a book by its cover, and yet covers actually do play a very vital role in in um, getting across that mood of what the book is about. And yeah, some of it, contemporary covers are great, but there is something a little lost when you look at at older covers from books. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like you know. It's nice if you have a book for it to be a nice object, like something you want to hold, something you want, like otherwise get the ebook. Like I get plenty of ebooks because it's stuff. I just, yeah, I don't, I don't need it on my shelf, but there's some books I'm like, I I need that on my shelf. That's, that's an object I want to have in my hands. Yeah. No, that's a good point. So I have um, loved talking to you. Um, I just have one question, which is what do you want readers to take away from the final girl support group? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> I know. Wow. I'm gonna end on a bang ah, here. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I just want people to have fun. I mean, my job is to be an entertainer, and I want to write books that people have fun reading. The greatest insult and the greatest compliment of my career is the same thing when people are like, I read your book in one day. I'm like, on the one hand, I'm like, it took me a couple of years to yeah. write that. <laughs> on the other hand, I'm like, Thank you. Like, I want to write a book that you want to race through. And so that's really what I want. I want people to have fun. Um, you know, and and I also I gotta say, I, I want people to give a little, a little bit of a shout out when they get to the end of this and think, you know, those final girls at the end of those movies, they deserve our respect. They do. They do. Thank you so much, Grady, for coming on the podcast. Oh, dude, thanks for having me. This is a blast. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.